Well, the country was a mess, the government was corrupt, the church was irrelevant, and um, nobody seemed to be doing anything to change it. Does that sound like I'm talking about today? No, I was I'm not talking about today. I'm talking about a time that happened many, many, many years ago uh, that uh, we find King David right in the middle of, but yet some of the events that we're gonna discuss might look a little bit like some of the things that we have engaged today. So we're gonna be talking this morning about an undivided heart and about uncommon faith. The Psalm, Psalm 8611, that we discussed last week has been kind of preoccupying Pastor Dan, myself, um, our staff. Uh, we've been spending a lot of time thinking about it. I wanna read it to you. And then over the next few weeks, we're gonna talk about what this undivided heart looks like in the life of the person who wrote this Psalm, King David, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let me read it to you. Teach me your way, Lord that I might rely on your faithfulness. Now I wanna stop right there because if you're gonna pray this prayer and I recommend, encourage you uh, to um, write this passage down if you cut and paste on your phone, uh, however it is that you try to remember things where you put things, this little verse right here would be a great one for you to hide in your heart. It's a prayer that I believe if you start every day praying or perhaps even pray several times throughout the day, I think God will change the way you think and maybe even change the way we live. Uh, I feel like it's very helpful to remember these Psalms, to remember these things and repeat them, especially in the form of a prayer. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. One of my favorite Proverbs, this isn't a Psalm, it's a proverb, is Proverb 3, 5, and 6. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Some of you in here, are living self-directed paths. Some of you in here are relying on your own faithfulness. Some of us fall into the trap of leaning on our own understanding, not acknowledging God except perhaps with the mouth, and we find ourselves straying from the people God called us to be with divided hearts and not living a life of uncommon faith. I want 2023 to be a year where we live differently. And the only way to get what we need and to get what we want is not by trying to pursue what it is we think we need and what we want, but by pursuing Christ and allowing him to give us what it is we need and what it is we want. And it sounds counterintuitive, but it's relying on God's faithfulness, not mine. Give me an undivided heart, not a divided heart, a heart of integrity, a simple heart, a single focused heart. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. And when David said, fear your name, what he means is that I won't disappoint you when it comes time for me to step up and serve you, that I won't live a life of disappointment, that I can live a life of uncommon faith. It's the life of the undivided heart. That's what I want. I hope you can say that. I would love to sit down and talk with each of you and just ask you, you know, is that what you want? Is your heart divided? If it's divided, why is it divided? How is it we're going to get it united? How are we gonna live lives with undivided hearts? We're gonna talk about that in general this morning. The country was a mess. The government was corrupt. The church was irrelevant and nobody seemed to be doing anything about it. The children of Israel, way back in the day, in the Old Testament, you find it in 1 Samuel, had lived through a period called the Judges, where God had given them judges to rule over them, some of whom were really good, 
and some bad. Well, toward the end of the period of Judges, it was far more bad than good. And there was a prophet, one of the last of this kind, named Samuel, who had appointed his kids, his sons, to judge over the people in Israel, to help with the government, to help direct the church, to try to be agents of change. And the Bible says that they were dirt bags. Now, the Bible doesn't say dirt bags. That's my translation. But what it literally means was they took bribes, they showed favoritism, and they directed their own path. So God said his hand was no longer going to be on them and something had to change. Now, I'm fast forwarding through a lot of history, but the people, the children of Israel, they got tired of having judges because it was weird. It was different than the other nations. And they said, we want a king. And Samuel said, well, you shouldn't have a king. God doesn't want you to have a king. And they said, we don't care. We're tired of looking different. We're tired of saying we follow judges. We want to follow a man. We want to pick the man we're going to follow. And so um, Samuel went to the Lord. And God said, don't worry about it. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So let's give them what they want. And then let them see they don't really want it. So they selected a man. The Bible says they selected him because he was tall and handsome and looked like a leader. In 1 Samuel 16, the Lord told Samuel, be really, really careful. Don't look at the outside appearance. God looks at the heart. That's why I'm suspicious of anybody over six foot tall. I'm just kidding about that. Pastor Dan's six foot five. So we, we have an ongoing, an ongoing feud about that. Saul was selected as king. He was even worse than the sons of Samuel. Well, for a while he did okay, but over time, man, it got bad. He started leading when he was about 40, about 10 years into his reign, by the time that he had gone literally nuts and made some mistakes that you really can't unmake, David was born. And David was born the youngest of a whole bunch of sons to a family who lived in Bethlehem and they didn't have a lot and they didn't mean a lot and they didn't look like a lot was gonna happen in and through them. Now, I'm fast forwarding through a lot of scripture and a lot of history, but God said to Samuel, I want you to appoint the next king and in fact, I'm going to tell you who it's going to be. And when you select him, everybody's going to be surprised. So God instructed Samuel to go to the house of a man, Jesse, in this little town of Bethlehem and said, bring your sons to me. And so he did. The first son, Eliab, was the son that looked like the king. He was buff and rugged and could fight and was smart and could speak well. And God said, nope, not your king. He said, well, you got any more sons? And sure enough, he brought up his other son, his second. God said, no, he brought up his third. God said, no, it went all the way down the list to where there were no more boys in the room. And Samuel looked at God, who God wasn't literally like physically there, but looked toward God and said, what now? And God said, just ask him if there's anybody else. So Samuel looked at the dad and said, you got any more sons? And he said, well, I got this one, but you surely don't want him. He's the runt of a litter, the youngest. He's out shepherding the flocks and um, I'll get him if you want, but I think it's a waste of time. And Samuel said, oh, you get him. So here comes David running in from the field. The Bible describes him as having interesting eyes, pretty eyes, rugged because he's lived out in the field, red 
because he was suntanned, right? And um, a boy, just a youth. When he walked in, God said to Samuel, that's the guy. So Samuel took a horn full of oil and anointed David the next king. Now, the problem was the first king was still there. And um, David went right back to the sheep and back to life as normal. And everybody waited. Well, Jesse wanted David to go check on his brothers because his brothers were at war with the fighting men, the children of Israel. They were fighting the Philistines, which seemed to happen all the time in the Old Testament. And so David was pretty excited to go and check on them. So he took a little entourage, a couple of people with him, some gifts, some food. And they went to check on his brothers who were fighting the Philistines at a place not too terribly far from where David lived. And his job was just to bring back word to his dad that they were okay. Now, I wanna to read to you what was happening because you probably know this story. And this is a story when we read about David facing a giant. Now, David had faced several giants already in his life. He had faced obstacles and opportunities in his life that were leading him to the next, that led him to the next, that led him to the next, as God led him through his lives, his life. We read in scripture that David, as he was a shepherd, had bears and lions attack the sheep and that God had allowed him to kill the bears and to kill the lions, to be faithful. He was alone. Nobody paid much attention to him. He was learning to worship when nobody seemed to care. And here he was in his life, just facing one more obstacle. A giant that you and I read about, we all know his name and you've heard this story many, many times. His name was Goliath. And Goliath was foul, he was scary, he was big, he was dangerous, and he needed to go. And nobody was doing anything about it because the government was corrupt, the king not doing his job, the church irrelevant, something had to change. So let's read this together. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Now that means he was about nine foot, eight inches tall. Um, that's pretty tall, if you can imagine that. Different people have sort of given him a different size, but nine feet, eight is big. I'm five foot, nine to 10, and he's four feet taller than me. Raising arms would be basketball goal, you know, backboard height, pretty scary. And he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, 200 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his, black, on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 25 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him and Goliath stood and shouted insults to the children of Israel about them and about their God. Now, back in the day, they fought with shield walls. You remember, you ever seen movies, historical movies where they fight with shield walls? A lot of the Viking movies, they formed shield walls and back in the, well, you, if, you, if you like history and warfare, you, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't, this is how it worked. Um, people who fought together, the soldiers on the same side, if you were getting ready to engage, oftentimes they would yell shield wall and you would have to get shoulder to shoulder with somebody, put your shield right next to them and you along a long line of people with your shields in front of you would begin to march forward. 
And then the people on the opposing the enemy side would, they would put their shields together and they would begin to march forward with the shield wall. And then pretty soon you clash in the middle in this big battle. And then you, you know, they stick each other with the swords and the shields or the spears and fight and all kinds of things happen. And you break through the wall and, and Goliath, can you imagine this kind of warfare with a nine foot eight person? He had his own person in front of him who walked carrying a shield, a man-sized shield, and being nine foot eight could just stand over the top. And I mean, he could just do some serious damage. So he was formidable. He was scary. And he was insulting. He was insulting the one true God. So David walked up to his brother, Eliab, and he said, hey, what's going on? And Eliab got mad. Now, Eliab was the brother who was supposed to be in line for the kingship, should the kingship been given to David's family, because he was the oldest. And he insulted David. He said, why are you even here? You're probably only here to look like you're in the battle in this fight. Where did you leave your scruffy little sheep? And he insulted David in front of all of his brothers and all the men. Now, David could have engaged David probably should have engaged. His honor had been besmirched in front of his brothers and his, his friends. And he could have fought. As a matter of fact, his brother Eliab probably deserved at least one punch to the face, if not several. But David showed wisdom here by choosing which battle was his to fight and which battle was his to leave alone. Because should David have chosen the wrong battle and fought his brother, he would have missed the opportunity to face the real threat. It's a subtle point in scripture, but one that you and I can't miss. We have to know which battles to leave alone. And we have to know at what point we're supposed to engage. I believe that's one of the reasons that so many churches spend so much time fighting with each other, that it causes us to miss the point of what we're supposed to be about in the first place. So David let the insult go. Even though he probably could have engaged, he chose not to. And he did something here that I don't think is subtle, friends. It's something I want you to do. And it's certainly something I wanna do. He worried about his character and he let God worry about his reputation. Now, you may not see this as being a huge point in this story, but I see it as being big because we Christians pick fights we have no business being in and it distracts us from the reason that we're here. Now, David turns and focuses his attention on the, on the giant and the Bible says that Goliath for 40 days had walked down a half mile hill from where the Philistines were encamped to a creek that ran along a, the bottom of a, of a ravine, a valley, and would walk back and forth insulting God and insulting the children of Israel. And David was incredulous. He said, who can allow this to stand? And the problem is the fighting men of the children of Israel had been sitting around defining the problem, talking about the threat, discussing how dangerous it was, but never doing anything about it. 
And David said, all right, I'll go. And Saul should have been the one to go. He was the tallest. He was the strongest. He was the best warrior. But Saul liked to hide in his tent. He was afraid God wasn't with him. And so Saul called David, tried to tell him not to go. And David said, look, I'm going. And then Saul dressed David in his armor. Now you're, you may not know clothes sizes for men, suit sizes. I'll just say it this way. Saul would have been a double XL. David, extra medium, right? And so Saul's trying to put David in his double XL armor and David's standing here in armor that doesn't fit, that belongs to somebody else, representing a life he never lived and warfare he didn't understand. And he said, I'm not you. This isn't me. I can't go like this. And he took off the armor and left it behind. Here's the next subtle point that I don't think is so subtle that I think you and I should grasp that when God calls you to do something and to live a life of uncommon faith, he calls you. And he calls you the way he created you. With your own personality, with your own gift mix, with your own flaws. That when you step out in faith, you don't have to try to recreate your personality or to grasp a new set of skills, to be something other than who God has made you to be. You just have to be all in and ready to do something. And David said, look, I, I don't have all that and I'm not all that. And if I die, I die, but I gotta be me as I'm faithful. And that's an important part, an important thing for us to remember because there are many challenges for us when we decide we wanna be faithful to try to create ourselves in somebody else's image and take our eyes off Jesus. So we see David having found his giant, just one giant in the middle of a lot of giants. Next week, we talk about another giant, Bathsheba. And I don't mean giant, she wasn't nine foot eight, but she was dangerous, friends. David faced giants his entire life. This was just the next giant up. We see him facing this giant. And I wanna talk about giants because giants can be obstacles and giants can be opportunities. And each of us have them. Now I want you to start by looking at just you, just you, not the person next to you, not the person across from you, not the person who you know, not the person who you wish were sitting here listening to this message. Just think about you, just yourself. Just think about you and God. Each of us have a personal giant. It's the one that's in front of us. Now, giants can be obstacles and they can be opportunities. But usually we have at least one thing in our lives that keep us from being like Jesus. And those things would certainly be considered giants. So what is it in your life that keeps you from being like Jesus? The one thing that you could make go away if you could make it go away. The thing that's right in front of you, the thing that nobody else can help you with, the thing that once you see it, you can't unsee it. To face giants in a life of uncommon faith with an undivided heart 
we have to address the ones that start right here. It's so easy for me to say, somebody else should do something about it. The army of the nation of Israel should do something about it. The church ought to do something about it. Our government ought to do something about it. And it starts right here. I got to do something about it. And friends, my problem and your problem, it starts right, right here with us. Right here. Don't fix it until you fix this. Well, I step out one little level there in a concentric circle and I look at my marriage. If you're married, look at your spouse. If you have kids at home or kids who you still have a lot of influence in, maybe you look at your kids, your close sphere of influence. Are there giants? Is there a giant? Is there an obstacle? that could be an opportunity for greater connection, deeper intimacy, better faithfulness. Are you ready to address it? To make your marriage, your parenting, your friendships more like Jesus. Obstacles are opportunities. As long as we address them. In our church, it's the exact same. Together, we look for obstacles that can be tremendous opportunities. And we look at the same criteria, the one that's right in front of us. The one that nobody else can do anything about or seems to want to. The ones that once you see, you can't unsee. And so a church is made up of people who've been willing to stand up and address their own personal giants who've done their best in their closest relationships to address those giants and turn them into opportunities and who are willing to be part of something that doesn't just sit around and define the problem, talking about how bad things look and how somebody should do something. Because friends, that's exactly what the army of the nation of Israel was doing. But we have to be ready to act. And that's what David was ready to do. He had all he could stand. He couldn't stand anymore. And he's gonna do something about it. We're gonna pick up and talk about that and apply it in just a minute. But I want us to sing first. Take a little break, soak it in. Let God soften your heart and then we'll bring it home. So you've decided to identify your giant. You've decided that you're gonna pick which fight to fight and which ones to let go. And by the way, most of the ones are the ones that we let go, right? The ones we choose to engage. We don't have to engage that often, but when we do, we need to make it count. We've chosen not to wear anybody else's armor, right? You've made the decision. God has chosen you and created you the way you are on purpose and for a purpose. And he will shape and change you from the inside out. But you don't have to recreate yourself in the image of somebody who you think has it all together. I don't even want you to dedicate yourself to the church. I want you to dedicate yourself through the church because we are not a to the church kind of church. We're a through the church kind of church. And it's the only way we get to understand and, 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 and enjoy the reality that by getting what we need, the only way we can get it is by giving ourselves away. That if we go after what we think we need, we aren't gonna get it. 
But if we give ourselves away to the Lord, oftentimes through the church, we find that we have more than we need because that's just the way that God works. I need a little more time and margin in my life, God. Then we serve a little more and he gives us margin. I need a little more money in my life, God. So we give and he gives us a little more margin. I need a little more love in my life, God. So we love a little more recklessly and generously and we find miraculously that it comes back to us because we're involved in a through mission, not a to mission. The problem was the children of Israel and the army of the children of Israel were involved in a two mission. They were camped up on the top of the hill, cursing the darkness, talking about what somebody ought to do. And the problem was that the giant was approaching. Now, Goliath was using a tactic that was very common. Pick your best warrior, right? Send them down, we'll fight. Whoever wins, then their army is the boss. The other army has to serve as slaves and wasn't pleasant. But the Bible says, and I want you to read this for yourself, that for 40 days, Goliath walked down and paced back and forth at the bottom of the ravine. On the 41st day, the army of the children of Israel still doing the same thing in their holy huddle, ignoring the fact that there's a real issue. The giant started walking up the hill. It's in there. Indecision becomes decision over time. In your marriage, with your kids, in your friendships, and in your church. Indecision becomes decision over time. And inaction becomes an action of reckless irresponsibility. And David said, listen, I'm in, I'm ready. It looks crazy, but let's do something. The only one, a boy of 15 years old with a nice suntan and interesting eyes armed with a sling and a couple of rocks. And the Bible says he ran to the battle. Let me read to you a couple of verses. Reaching into his bag, he took out a stone and he slung it and he let it go and he struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into the Philistine's forehead and he fell face down on the ground. Dead. What are the odds? Astronomical. Caesars never in a million years would have gotten close to getting this right. The odds, incalculable. That's the right way to say that. A stone from a sling, from a shepherd boy who'd never been to war, penetrating the skull of a man that looked more like a dinosaur than a man. But the stone was a laser-guided missile straight from God. David had nothing to do with the stone. Isn't it interesting how God does the most amazing things when we're willing to run toward the giants, but chooses not to do anything as long as we sit around and complain. It just took one boy who said, all right, if I die, I die, but enough's enough. And off he went. Love to see it. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. 
Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and he killed him. That was a brutal time, warfare, Old Testament times. Man, they were rough. But I wanna talk to you for just a second about this stone, okay? Because all of us at some point have to do something. We have to have courage to mend a relationship, to begin a habit, to start a new way of life, to redirect our family, to reshape the way we do our careers that honor the Lord and don't honor ourselves, to live with an undivided heart, trusting in God's faithfulness and not our own. At some point, we have to be ready to shoot this shot and let God do what he's gonna do. And we have to make sure that when we do it, even though it might look reckless, it might look unlikely, if we got our think tank together, if we put together a threat assessment, if even if we wrote out a business plan, nobody would invest in it because it just doesn't look like it's gonna work. Sometimes that's just the way God works. We have to make absolutely sure that God is in it. And the way we do that is by studying Jesus, which is what we're going to do in just a second. Make sure that we acknowledge and recognize that it's bigger than we are. I can't do it. And I have to have your help, God because that's the kind of person that God chooses to use. David grew up and was trained in isolation, in obscurity, and with humility, which brought integrity. And as he faced his giants, he acknowledged the fact that, yeah, it's bigger than him, but God's gonna do what God's gonna do. So he ran down the hill. And then make sure that it's big enough that when it's done, when it's accomplished, when the giant in your life falls, when the giant in your family falls, when the giant in your business, in our church, in our neighborhood, in our, in our city, when it falls, that it was so miraculous and so supernatural that only God gets the credit. Now, we have to be careful here because we don't want to get crazy and say, well, I, I love slinging rocks at people. I mean, if I get to throw rocks at people who or giants in my life, then that, that's going to be fun. I can't wait to see my wife at lunch. I'm going to pick her with a rock. I mean, that's not what I'm talking about. Because we live in a time post-Jesus, life, death, burial, and resurrection. In a time when we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and charged and challenged with the gospel of Jesus Christ. To live it, to share it, and not be a to church, but be a through church. And so I wanna to talk to you about the heart that's undivided. The heart that David had. And I wanna give you three characteristics that both I think will check whether or not we're on the right track and challenge in areas where we may need to improve. Let's look for a second at the heart of Jesus and make sure that we are consistent. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, that's coming again, his second coming. Instead, he's patient with us not wanting anyone left behind or to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. So an undivided heart is a patient heart. And Jesus was patient. Now, if you pray for patience, that's gonna be an exercise that will give you a testimony you can share later. But Jesus expected the world to act like the world. And you know what? 
He wasn't scandalized when they did. He got far more worked up about the sins of the spirit than he did the sins of the flesh. Even though he didn't approve and condone of sin of any kind, the church gets so spun up over things that divide and alienate. Where if we're not careful, our impatience with people acting like they should act if they don't know Jesus, we find ourselves just like the army of the nation of Israel up on the hill, defining the problem and doing absolutely nothing about it. A two army, not a through army. The second characteristic that I see, and there's so many, I just pulled three because we're gonna get out of here and go to lunch. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is so plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. An undivided heart is a compassionate heart. Do you have a heart of compassion? If you don't have a patient and compassionate heart, this could be why you have problems between you and God. It certainly could be problems between you and your spouse or your kids or the people closest to you. It certainly could cause problems with you and your relationship to the body of Christ. And perhaps one of these two things defines a giant that you have to address, embrace, and attack so that we can be like Jesus. We Christians should have such soft hearts, but we get so calloused so easily. You know, the longer a person is a Christian and the older we get, the softer our hearts. The more loving, the less judgmental, the less legalistic, the more compassionate, the more patient. Sometimes you just scratch your head and you wonder what happens to people. Because if we know Jesus, the heart has to be undivided. Finally, number three, I love this. And I'll keep using this with you because this is our mission. For the son of man, Jesus, came to seek and destroy the lost. No, the Bible doesn't say that. I just want to see if you're paying attention. The son of man comes to seek and to save the lost. Sometimes Christians feel like it's our job to seek and destroy anybody who's different than we are. And we turn ourselves into a group of people who try to argue, bully, lobby, and muscle people into a saving relationship with a gracious, compassionate, seeking, saving father. And we've created such a paradox that the world throws their hands up and say, I don't have anything to do with it. And it's not Jesus' fault, it's mine. So as we look at our hearts, as you look at your heart and I look at my heart standing here two weeks into 2023, is it undivided? Is your life focused on God's goal? You may not know what God's goal for you is yet, but you know after you get your life focused. If not, why not? Is there something that you need to address inside. Is there something you need to make right? To change, to improve, to start with the person closest to you or the people closest to you.
Do you see Jesus in those relationships? Do you see Jesus in you? Do you see Jesus in the way you relate to your church? Are you part of the through church? Or are you only interested in the to church? We're gonna have so much fun over these next two weeks talking about this undivided heart. Next week, we're gonna look at David having a divided heart, facing a whole nother giant. He didn't do such a good job this time. And then the week after that, we're gonna look at the end of David's life and talked about lessons learned along the way. I can't wait to do that with you. I can't wait to see you next week. Father, thank you for my friends.